Welcome to the Education Gadfly Show. I'm your host, Mike Petrilli of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute. Today, Nina Reese, the president and CEO of the National Alliance for Public Charter Schools, joins us to discuss the trials and triumphs of charter schools over the past 11 years as she plans to step down from her role. Then on the Research Minute, Amber discusses new research that finds teacher union endorsements are as influential in school board elections as shared party affiliation. All this on the Education Gadfly Show. This is the Education Gadfly Show. That's what I've got. What are you saying, Amber? (laughs) (laughs) That it's all about the money? What does Gadfly say? Hello, this is your host, Mike Petrelli of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute, here at the Education Gadfly Show and online at FordhamInstitute.org. And now, please welcome our special guest for this week, Nina Reese. Nina, welcome back to the show. Thank you so much for having me, Mike. As you all must know, Nina is the president and CEO of the National Alliance for Public Charter Schools. Also joining us as always, David Griffith. David, welcome to the show. Hey, Mike. Always a pleasure. Yeah. So, Nina, you are the president and CEO of the National Alliance, but not for much longer. Big news in recent days that you've announced that after 11 years at the helm, you are going to be moving on from this role later this year. So first, let me say congratulations. And that as many people in the charter movement have been saying, you've done an amazing job and we're going to miss you. Well, thank you so much, Mike. You and I uh, have known each other for much longer, and we all started working on charter schools when we were at the Office of Innovation and Improvement at the U.S. Department of Education. I'm also really proud that many of the initiatives that we're currently engaged in are things that we gave birth to or we shepherded back when we were at the department. So even though I've been here for 11 years, been working on choice and charter-related issues for much longer. Let's talk about all of that, the the last 11 years in charter land and and what the future holds. Let's do that in Ed Reform Update. Okay, Nina. So 11 years ago, so this was 2012. Gosh, it's hard to believe. So you have been through the Obama administration, then the Trump administration, now the Biden administration, Congress changing hands as many times. Of course, lots of activity at the state level as well. You've noted when you gave an announcement about stepping down that the charter movement has continued to grow quite significantly during this time, as has the charter school appropriations at the federal level. So all great stuff. I guess I'm curious curious, when you think about those 11 years, what, what, what has been the greatest challenge? I, I suspect our listeners would say, oh, it must have been during the Trump years when the bipartisanship was really just falling apart. Or, or maybe it was a pandemic. I mean, t- tell me, what what's your take? Well, those are both big challenges, you know, uh, being able to navigate the politics of charter schools at the national level uh, with a president who didn't represent the values of many of the individuals who send their children to charter schools and many leaders who are running charter schools was certainly very challenging. Navigating, you know, work and life during the pandemic was challenging for a lot of sectors, education in particular, uh, especially since, you know, charters are given a degree of freedom and flexibility in exchange for raising student achievement. So it was also a time for us to demonstrate that that freedom and flexibility actually helped you uh, navigate a pandemic better and faster. We're actually studying that right now to see if, in fact, our students uh, you know, I, we know that students did not do well during the pandemic, but if there are particular things that our leaders did during that time that made them 
you know, add value to the academic achievement of our students or reduce trauma in a certain way is certainly something that we should learn about and, and take to scale. You know, I think the three things that actually did happen or were accentuated during my tenure, which will continue to be an issue, are one of them, of course, is the politics. The second is the slowdown in the growth of charter schools, which before the pandemic had to do with the fact that in some uh, cities we had potentially hit a market share cap. Uh, but the slowdown in growth also has to do with the value in the real estate piece still lagging. Most states don't allow you to have a building or give you the money to purchase a building when you have a school. So I think solving that real estate puzzle is always going to be a big issue if we really want to scale and grow rapidly. And then the other piece of it, which I hope gets addressed soon, is this question of innovation. Have we been innovative enough? And are there things we are potentially doing to ourselves or things that authorizers or lawmakers are doing that stifle innovation in charter schools? I don't know that that's necessarily a moment in time during my tenure, but mostly something that I talk I, I thought about a lot and I hope that post-pandemic with all the other developments that are taking place around choice and options that we find some new energy to innovate a lot more in the chartering space uh, at a time when technology is disrupting our day-to-day -day lives and education as we speak and at a time when the face of the jobs of tomorrow is changing so rapidly. Yeah, you know, gosh, so much to unpack there, Nina. I mean, the innovation point is really interesting. You know, obviously, there's been a big debate forever in the charter school movement about how to balance accountability with innovation, right? We want to open the door to doing things differently, but we don't want to open the door to bad schools or to fraud or to people who are just trying to make a quick buck. And we know that, you know, sometimes that has happened over the years, right? A lot of us excited about online schools way back when, way before the pandemic, only to see a lot of those schools really get you know, disappointing results is, is an understatement, terrible results in many cases. Uh, you know, so here we are again saying innovation. And and look, it may be the case that there's now more potential for innovation outside the charter sector in education savings accounts and homeschooling and pods and that whole world that is less regulated for better or for worse. And, you know, the charter movement, you know, still does have some constraints that maybe those new options don't have. I also notice on the politics, you know, for sure hard during the Trump years with so many charter leaders, uh, as he said, very politely not sharing Trump's values. Of course, on the flip side, you know, Joe Biden comes in the first president since charter schools were created, were invented, that is anti-charter school, you know, or at least certainly not pro-charter school, uh, you know, unlike Bill Clinton, unlike Barack Obama, of course, unlike Bush and Trump and a big challenge and, and you know, big headwinds among many Democrats and cities and in too many states as well. So, you know, political challenges all around. I, I'm really interested, though, let, let's really keep going on the growth question, right? Where is charter growth going to come from going forward? Uh, you're saying that, yeah, in some cities, it's harder. We've hit 30, 40, 50% market share, and it might, you know, get getting that next 5% might be really hard. Where else can we go? David, I want to get your thoughts on that. You've been studying this issue. I don't want to like steal our thunder for later for some findings that are coming. But I mean, do you agree that this is just a matter of numbers or is there still running room? Well, I, I actually honestly want to hear Nina's perspective on this. There's obviously a, a limit to how many kids can enroll in charters, but it's not clear what that limit is. And I, I guess I'm I'm here curious to hear your thoughts on where the growth will come from, even if it is slow. I mean, we have an incredibly rapidly growing Asian population in this country. We have 
people migrating back to the inner ring suburbs and exurbs. It's a, it's an authentic question, right? What, where do you think this is going in the next five to 10 years? So to your last point, there is just migration out, out of these cities and into suburbs and exurbs and all that. If you look at the progress that we made over the past couple of years, most every state that had an opportunity to do something around charter schools did so. So, you know, states like Tennessee, Ohio, you know, we just passed the law in Montana, uh, Wyoming, West Virginia. So there are a lot of places that or Arkansas, you can open a charter school anywhere in Arkansas. So a lot of the energy is going to come uh, in these new places that are not as familiar to the charter school space in terms of some of the providers that were offering charter schools in the in the cities. So it's both exciting because you're dealing with new individuals and new communities, but also potentially a little bit more challenging because if you're dealing with communities that are more rural, uh, then this question of you know uh, you know how do you scale and whatnot will come into play. Uh, if you look at California. California is still growing. It's just not growing as fast. And most of the growth is outside of Los Angeles and some of these traditional places, LA, the Bay Area, San Diego, where charters have traditionally been in. So I would take a look at the places uh, where there is an opportunity to open a school and find those entities that are interested in opening schools and equip them with all of the lessons that we've learned over the years so they don't make the same mistakes. But in order for the sector to grow, you do need to bring newcomers and constantly you know, refresh the pool of people who are interested in opening charter schools. And you know, this is not a, an argument against taking the effective models to scale. And certainly Mackie Raymond now has a list of all these gap-busting schools that she uncovered before the pandemic. I think whatever those school leaders did in order to get to the way, to, to where they are is valuable for the sector, and hopefully they'll continue to grow. But I don't know how you replicate these models in communities that look so different and have such different needs from where these schools are currently located. Right. I mean, although it, 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 to me, it seems like there's two different issues, right? One is, are there places that still look like kind of high poverty areas where the schools like KIPP and Success and IDEA and these other high flying uh, networks have done quite well where there's still room to grow? And my sense is there is, it, as you said, it's the entering suburbs in some places where, you know, like in the Washington, D.C. area, Washington, D.C. is saturated, but Prince George's County is not. Pockets of Montgomery County that have a lot of poverty, Fairfax County even. So, you know, can you expand there? You know, I think there's still room in in Tennessee, Georgia, big chunks of Texas, some of these big and mid-sized cities in Texas where there's still not that much market share. So, you know, there's still running room in high poverty areas. But then the second question is, what about in the suburbs, in the exurbs, in small towns? Some of what we see in, say, Idaho, you know, where our friend Terry Ryan and his colleagues have been, uh, you know, really playing Johnny Appleseed and helping these schools grow up in, in very non-traditional places for charter schools. And I think you're right, Nina, there. You're not going to get Kip to go start a school in rural Idaho, but uh, you need some new ideas. And we've seen that in some places where uh, you can do some cool things and there's a need. And so can the charter movement grow to meet those needs as well? I think in order for this stuff to really work well is philanthropy needs to encourage new people to come and open schools and give them the runway to apply. So one of the reasons we're such fans of the charter schools program is it's one of the only sources of funding that's not biased against a particular community, despite all the noise last year. If you file a good application, you will get the money. You guys you know, in Ohio have received it, and then that money will help you launch your school. But what doesn't exist is, is the pre-planning grant. Uh, you know, if you 
you want to start the concept paper, start to apply to get authorized. So finding ways to encourage people to apply, I think needs to, there needs to be a pot of funding or some interest from philanthropy and or others to attract new people to start to look at the chartering space more seriously in some of these communities that David has identified as hotspots for growth. All right. Well, thank you, Nina. Thank you for coming on the show. Thank you for your service. These past 11 years, we'll be excited to see where you land. Nina Reese, CEO and president of the National Alliance for Public Charter Schools. Thanks so much for coming on. Thank you so much for having me. Now it's time for everyone's favorite, Amber's Research Minute. Amber, welcome back to the show. Thank you, Mike. What happened to your Washington commanders this last week? Oh, my gosh. Was that horrendous? Oh, my gosh, Mike. I mean, what the heck? We were on a little streak there. Well, good. And then got completely trampled. I almost wanted them to call the game. You know, let us go home. Well, see, I think this is one of these things where we like in research, we need to have context. See, their first two games of the year were against teams that were not very good. And then they played the Buffalo Bills. And so that probably explains a lot of it. I, I will say Fordham, uh, to two of our colleagues, big Buffalo Bills fans, they were there. I, I understand there was maybe as much Buffalo Bills blue as there was uh, Commanders. What, Burgundy. Uh, huh. Burgundy. Yeah. yeah. All right, Amber. What you got? Uh, we have a new study out by Michael Hartney and Vlad Kogan called the politics of teacher union endorsements. So here we go with this. Uh, A little bit of background first. Union endorsed candidates win 70% of contested board races nationally across the country. That's largely stayed the same over the past two decades when we look at those data. Moreover, union endorsement tends to boost candidates who run in both Democrat and Republican-leaning locales. Uh, But not many studies have dug into what may explain the electoral value of union endorsement. So they're trying to get a little bit into the black box here. So first they summarized three different smaller studies that they conducted um, that examine whether providing voters with information about whether a particular candidate is endorsed by the local teachers union. First, whether that changes their voting behavior or not. And then they do kind of a cool experiment where they rank different qualities of a candidate to try to get at how important the union endorsement is compared to other things that might be, you know, part of that candidate's platform or characteristics. So the first two survey experiments take place more than a decade apart. They do the first one in 2012, the second one earlier this year in 2023. In both studies, voters are provided with short bios of each candidate, and they vary whether this information includes information about whether the candidate is endorsed by the teachers union. So they just add, you know, they randomly change this up, whether they get that one sentence that says so-and-so is supported by the San Diego Educators Union or something like that. Uh, The earlier survey, again, takes place in San Diego only, and they find that union endorsement increases voter support for the endorsed candidate by about six percentage points. That effect is concentrated among Democrats and voters who have a positive perceptions of teachers, public employees, and unions in general. And this was interesting. Although that impact varies across subgroups, it never actually hurts a candidate's prospects among any major segment of the electorate. Uh, And then when they do the replication study in 2023, they have a broader sample 
I think it's actually a national sample this time. They repeat, it's a lot of pages, but they repeat their core finding in that second broader sample that shows that union endorsement is a plus, is a win for candidates who receive it. Uh, but the most interesting part to me anyway was in 2023 when they also added on this conjoint experiment uh, where they asked respondents, okay, can you rank the importance of these various candidate attributes in addition to the union endorsement? So then they can see the magnitude of the effect relative to other factors that prior research has identified is also important to voters in local elections. We've done this sort of thing before where we've asked respondents in our charter studies or you know school studies, like what do parents value in terms of their child's education? So similar methodology, they ask, for instance, how important is an endorsement from your chamber of commerce or your editorial board of your local newspaper, um, that sort of thing. The uh, conjoint experiment shows, again, a sizable boost for teacher union endorsed candidates with their support outweighing endorsements from these other entities, um, your chamber and your newspaper and your whomever else. Uh, they also find strong support for school board candidates who are parents of children in the public schools. So, you know, if, you, if, if that's in there in terms of your bio, it's likely to bode well for you. These results do not depend on whether voters also receive information about the candidate's party, but when that information is made available to them, so it's not sort of in this randomized design of getting the information or not, they do find that voters prefer candidates of their same party. And finally, they find that the incumbents are more likely to receive the union endorsement when salaries for the most senior teachers have increased during their time on the board. For an average district, the effect size corresponded to a 10 percentage point increase in the share of incumbents endorsed for a 10% increase in these salary, top of the salary scale increases for the, for the veteran teachers. Uh, little evidence that academic improvement shapes union evaluations of a school board candidate who's asking them for support in their reelection. That's what I've got. What are you saying, Amber? <laughs> That what it's all they, about the money? Excuse me. I'm what being, are they trying to say? I'm being objective in my <sighs> reporting. One of these studies that tells us exactly what we thought was happening is, is what's happening. Although, look, I think what is really interesting, and, and I don't mean to be so, so snide, but, you know, yeah, some of this does seem like common sense here, uh, but still worth digging into. But it is interesting that in the experiment, you know, you had even, what, uh, you know, Republicans who saw the union endorsement and that was a plus for them. And I, that is very interesting to me. Yes. Do we think they know, I'm not talking about Republicans or Democrats here, do we think people know for sure that they're unions? Because they don't say union endorsement on them, right? They say national education. Do you think people connect the dots? What's funny, and I didn't have time to talk about this, but you hit on a very important point because they they wondered the same thing, David. So in that first survey back in 2012, they had something like, you know, education association or something like that. And then in the second one, they included union, teacher union language specifically, because they were afraid that that might have, you know, biased the results one way or the other. And they found that it actually did not make a difference. It did not impact the results. Interesting. Yeah. I mean, look, teachers are very popular, you know, as, as well, they should be. And, you know, Everybody trusts teachers, you know, that this notion that teachers should have more power in our education system, it, it makes sense intuitively. And, you know, 
as long as there's also accountability for results, I think it makes sense uh, substantively. You know, I mean, that's a, a big reason why some of us love charter schools is because they have been a way to empower educators, you know, create the school their dreams and to do their work without as much uh, dealing with the hassles of, of the district office, and the bureaucracy. All that's great. But we also know that, you know, the unions are the unions. They're going to do what they do, which is, you know, not only fight for higher salaries, which you know, probably is good for student achievement if done right, but, you know, also protect those ineffective teachers. And and that's the real killer from my perspective. You know, this to me overlaps with this question about partisan elections. I know they tried to tease this out in the survey, but I don't know. I feel like you just need a real world test of that. And there's places where there's more talk of doing more, uh, you know, making elections, school board elections, partisan. It's almost like the worst time possible to do (laughs) Right. I mean, right. As we're having these terrible culture wars over, you know, books and stuff. And so you can imagine uh, we're going to just make polarization in this country even worse. Right. But from the perspective of having more information, maybe about, you know, who's the reformer versus who's kind of more defending the traditional system and the unions and that this or that. Yeah, I don't know. You would think that it would help uh, candidates that are in effect running against the teachers unions to at least be able to signal to, frankly, Republicans that, you know, they might want to support them. Yeah, it's sort of fascinating. I'm not an expert in the Republican rank and file, but they don't seem to share that the elite reformers priorities when it comes to this sort of thing. Right. I mean, it's not what is motivating them in local elections. You know, maybe it's choice or uh, culture wars or something, but it's sure not, you know, interest groups and and their alliance with. I don't know. I mean, there's so much commentary around this. It's it is. It's shocking to me, even despite sort of having some intuitive sense that there's disconnect there. It's still it's amazing. Maybe it's something that you just hear on Fox News. But then, you know, when you actually go to to vote, it's just not where your head's at. It's kind of hard to say. I often find this is wandering off track, but I often find that when I actually vote, my headspace is so different from the headspace that I'm in when I'm engaging with other people. I don't know if other people find that, but like there's the headspace that I'm in when I'm when I'm having a sort of policy debate. And then there's the headspace I'm in when I'm staring at this piece of paper and looking at specific names, right? And like Googling them. And it's just, it doesn't map very well onto uh, all these sort of high-minded principles and big ideas that I have about how public policy should work. It doesn't, it doesn't provide much guidance, right? Well, look, what, what, one more thought on this is that in my experience, in most places in the country, I suspect you go to a school board election, it is only the union endorsement that is made readily available, you know, at the polls. Here in Montgomery County, they pass out the Apple ballot, you know, uh, very savvy of them. Uh, you know, if the chamber has endorsed somebody or the newspaper, maybe you come across that. Now, with the exception of in a few places, especially in some big city elections where, you know, some philanthropists and reformers have put a lot of effort into running a reform slate and actually doing the work of knocking on doors or passing out material at the polls so that people are aware of it. And look, you know, if if you say, OK, at least the unions, whatever you think of them, they have vetted these people to make sure they're not crackpots. Uh, and, you know, because sometimes even I go to the polls and I want to vote against the people on the Apple ballot and often do, but I don't have, a, I have a hard time finding out who these other people are. And some of them turn out to be cranks and crackpots, you know, I don't want to vote for them. Anyway, if this, it, you know, this has always been a challenge, but if reformers want to go toe to toe with the unions on school board elections, it takes a lot of investment, you know, and, uh, and, and there's just no shortcut for that. And I think, you know, voters Sure. They don't know who these people are. They would like somebody to have done the work for them, vetting their views, making sure they're serious. Uh, and I think if you can do that, 
uh, maybe you've got a chance, but it's a pretty high bar. I was had the pleasure real quick of meeting the local um, candidate for my school board here, and she's the only uh, Republican, you know, running on on a, um, you know, a board that has all Democrat seats. And I was looking at her sort of explanation and, and I thought it was interesting because it really did sort of force her because she's not, you know, putting an R after her name to, you know, say what she was for. And I, I found that words like accountability and transparency are used a lot um, when it comes to some of this, you know, Republican lingo in terms of trying to, um, I guess, distinguish themselves. I don't know. It's it's an interesting, um, you know, the way that they need to inform voters of what they're for, right? When you when you can't just go by affiliation, which is probably a, probably a good thing. I think there's an inherent challenge, right, when it comes to articulating, I don't know, an, an alternative position to. Uh, a, a well-established interest group, right? Because I, you know, I, I don't want to dismiss the, the, the possibility or the, the reality of sort of intra-union tension, right? Because I'm sure it exists, right? But it is not the reform community is not does not speak with one voice on many things, right? It's a constant, uh, it's a constant debate, honestly. And so I'm trying to even picture what Mike's talking about, right? And it's like, who would fund that, right? Like. How many people would get on board? Wouldn't, you know, 75% of people immediately jump off board, you know, at the notion that reform can be squeezed into some box and we all have to, I mean, that's just not, that's not the nature of, you know, a, a sort of reform movement that that tries to seek out the, the public interest and adjust course and yada, yada, yada. Uh, I just think it's, I just think it's much more difficult um, to, to present um, a message when it's sort of inherently, I don't know, caveated. Um, intellectually honest. All right. Well, we will need to leave it there. That is all the time we've got for this week. But thank you, Amber. A very interesting and important one from our friends. Appreciate that. But uh, it is time for us to say goodbye. So until next week, I'm David Griffith. And I'm Mike Petrilli of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute, signing off. The Education Gapfly Show is a production of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute, located in Washington, D.C. For more information, visit us online at FordhamInstitute.org.